Good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for attending the uh, Army's Network Readiness and Modernization Media Panel. Um, most of you are obviously tracking that the Army Network is a key enabler for our forces' readiness. Uh, 2016, as we'll learn over the next hour or so, was a uh, very important year for uh, progress in several key network modernization readiness efforts. Today's panel will highlight a few of, uh, few of the most important to include uh, unified network capabilities, consolidation of data centers, network convergence, and modernizing our tactical network expeditionary systems. We'll also discuss important steps we're taking to secure a network, secure its environment, and equip and utilize our cyber defense teams. Uh, the format for today's uh, conversation will be a panel discussion up front followed by a moderated Q&A. I would ask all of the uh, media present and others to make sure that we use our microphone system here in the audience as uh, this activity will be podcast as well. Uh, participants in today's activities, Lieutenant General Robert Farrell, CIO G6 of the Army, Major General John Morrison, Commander of the Cyber Center of Excellence, Fort Gordon, Georgia, Major General John Baker, Commander of NETCOM, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Major General Bruce Crawford, Commander of Communications Electronics Command at Aberdeen Proving Ground, Maryland. Mr. Gary Martin, the Program Executive Officer for C3T at Aberdeen Proving Ground, Maryland. And Mr. Manish Patel from PEO EIS. He is their CIO at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. General Farrell. Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, again, thank you all for being here. I'd also like to thank my teammates for participating in this. Uh, much-needed uh, panel. I also want to thank AUSA for another, you know, tremendous AUSA symposium and allowing us to uh, share and also, again, team and build those uh, much-needed relationships. As uh, Paul talked about earlier, you know, lots of activities has occurred uh, with our network, and this morning I'd like to share with you a lot of good news and then also look at uh, what's next. As you look at uh, the network modernization strategy with large, in FY16, we had to put on the table lots of goals to accomplish. Uh, team with many units, uh, R-Cyber, Second Army, and NETCOM, DISA, DOD, CIO, uh, we were able to accomplish a lot, starting with the network modernization. We put on this, uh, uh, a marker on the table to migrate uh, in FY16 over uh, 19 installations. Uh, thus far, at the end of the fiscal year, we've, we achieved uh, 21. Our goal for FY17 is to migrate over 44 installations. I believe, uh, looking at what we currently have for our team with uh, Disaconis and Second Army NETCOM, we'll be able to achieve that. As you look at network convergence, uh, we have so many separate and disparate networks in our enterprise many, and we have a, a effort ongoing to collapse those environments onto one Army enterprise. This year, uh, we had on the, on marked to migrate the, the Reserves, Corps of Engineers, as well as the National Guard. So far, we've uh, migrated uh, the National Guard behind the JRSS onto the Army network, and we're Hopefully by second quarter of next FY, we'll finish with the Corps of Engineers followed by the National Guard. The next cycle of units that we are going to converge onto the Army network uh, will be MedCom, ATEC, MCOM, 
and Army Material Command. So you see, as we, we're all moving towards the road to GIE, which is one infrastructure, secured infrastructure, uh, with one common standard. And this is a good initiative that we have uh, ongoing. Um, we're also uh, embracing cloud. Uh, not everything's going to move to the cloud. But we believe with cloud, it will enhance mission command. It will continue having access to a common user experience, uh, reduce the IT and OM um, cost is, will also reduce the fiscal footprint and enhance uh, data consolidation. So we have awarded uh, our contract for Redstone uh, to start our first pilot. Why Redstone? Uh, there are, I think, average of uh, 24 data centers that are there, 11 of which that are Army. And so the goal with this pilot is to migrate those uh, apps into that environment. Paul mentioned unified capability. We released a RFP out on the street, uh, again, to the, to the industry partners uh, uh, last week uh, in order to acquire that capability of having voice, video, uh, IM, chat uh, at the fingertips of our soldiers that will untether them from their office. And again, a first step, a, a step towards moving towards a software-defined environment. Uh, data center uh, closure, uh, lots of effort from all of the service uh, to move based on the OMB and DOD directive to consolidate and close da uh, data centers. Uh, we have uh, approximately over 200, and that's uh, just average depending on how you define what a data center is, um, that the Army operates. Uh, our goal is to uh, reduce that number down to 10 uh, data centers. So that's, as you see, that will be a huge effort uh, by all to kind of move in that direction. Uh, we, we've identified uh, four locations, CONUS, where we want to have enduring uh, locations, one being Fort Knox, one being Aberdeen, excuse me, um, uh, Redstone, one being Fort Bragg, and one, one uh, Fort Carson. Six overseas, but we haven't uh, identified those locations as yet. Uh, the Secretary of the Army is getting ready to release a uh, directive out to the Army that uh, gives more guidance and uh, put more firmness into consolidating and closing these data centers. In that directive will be very detailed uh, schedule uh, by location of what, when we want those data centers to consolidate and or close. Uh, next area that I would say that uh, we've um, worked a lot in, uh, as you look at the enterprise, it's a legacy enterprise. Um, and so we are acquiring some tools that will provide us some asset visibility to see what we have uh, and help automate uh, the patching security aspect of, of our enterprise. And so that's an initiative that we've accomplished uh, this year. Windows 10, as you know, it's a DOD directive to, to move all of DOD to Windows 10. That migration is ongoing now. Uh, we're focused in CODIS in Europe. Uh, we have in Europe now well over 700 early adopters that uh, have uh, moved to Windows 10, and we're doing the same here in Conan. We have uh, approximately 28 states of the National Guard that we're testing and evaluating now uh, to move towards uh, Windows 10. So it's a good news story when you talk about moving to that uh, operating system. Why? It adds uh, an upper layer of uh, security that we don't currently have in our environment uh, for the users. It also moves uh, the entire DOD on one operating system. 
And so we see that as a good news story, and we've embraced it and moving out um, 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 with a vengeance. Uh, lots of activities that I just talked about, from data center closure, setting up the cloud, net mod, to um, network convergence. Lots of activity that requires synchronization uh, throughout the entire process. And so, again, I just wanted to publicly thank the leadership of uh, R Cyber, Second Army, and Netcom, DISA, DISA CONUS, uh, and, and uh, DOD for assisting us in that. Now, on the tactical side, uh, we've had a lot of uh, movement on that side as well. Uh, home Station Mission Command uh, Centers at all of our divisional headquarters, which are equates uh, about 18 that guard and active and guard. Uh, we've completed surveying all those uh, installations to bring all of those installations up to a common standard. Uh, as you reflect back on Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, those installations um, weren't standard, having the same capabilities, so that survey allowed us to see what we need to do to do a tech refresh. We've completed, or just about completed, four installations this year and projected to do six uh, next year. So that's looking at home station uh, mission command centers that provide uh, the warfighters the opportunity to have the same capabilities they have at the distant end with their tactical capabilities back at home station. Next initiative that we're working on is in route comp. Uh, working with the Air Force uh, and PEO community, uh, in FY17, you will find that we'll outfit 17, excuse me, 35 C-17 aircraft uh, with new antenna mounts and roll-on, roll-off pods uh, to allow the warfighters to communicate, get all situation, um, situation updates while en route to the area of operation. And so in 17, you'll see seven, excuse me, a 35 C-17 that will be rolling out. The last item um, in, in the tactical space that I'll talk about, and I know Gary Martin will expand more, um, is early entry communications. Uh, uh, we've uh, invested, uh, the Army has invested in T2C2, and I, I, that ac acronym always escapes me, is, um, and I'll give you the acronym afterwards, but it always escapes me, but it's early entry uh, communications that provides a small footprint of services to the early entry forces in any area of operations. We've uh, looked at uh, the entire Army uh, BOIP to provide them a rollout of that capability, not just for the 82nd or the 101st. So again, looking at that requirement for all. As you look at um, the in route and early entry uh, communications, we're doing a lot of work uh, at the NIE when it comes to our command posts. Uh, looking at making it more scalable, more mobile, agile, even looking at uh, the, the generator power as well as uh, wireless capability. And I won't steal uh, Gary's thunder on that. But lots of work being done in the tactical space as well. But uh, as I say all of this accomplishments in 16, I remain concerned about the security of the enterprise. Uh, when you look at the enterprise at large, it's a legacy enterprise with too many back doors, too many separate and disparate networks, too many systems that are not interoperable. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. We're up for the t uh, challenge uh, to ensure that uh, we meet these requirements for the warfighter for the next fight. Uh, we have um, one item that uh, I would tell you that uh, is going to help us uh, is 
is the leadership support on trying to prioritize this as a critical uh, priority for the Army. But what we do need is funds. Um, you know, there's no free chicken out there. Uh, the network, uh, as you know, uh, very costly, and that uh, for us in our business, it requires uh, resources to maintain the momentum of uh, network modernization to ensure that each soldier that are on the distant end gets the right capabilities required to, to be able to win uh, the next fight. So with that, um, um, I'll turn it over to uh, John Morrison and uh, the rest of the panel members. Sir, thank you. It's uh, good to see so many familiar faces. I, I'm not going to give you, like last year, the operational look. That's going to be with, uh, in the very capable hands of John Baker. Uh, in my new position as the um, Cyber Center of Excellence Commander, I'm really the proponent for three core competencies, cyber, signal, and electronic warfare. So I'm going to give you a sense of our progress over the last year from an operational perspective and then back it into those things that we're looking and working on as we move towards the future. But, but I'm going to leave you with a premise. You, you heard the Chief talk yesterday and General Perkins talk yesterday about multi-domain battle. Air, land, sea, space, and cyber. It used to be that in air-land battle, it was pretty straightforward how we operated. Now new operational concepts are where how the Army will impact the other domains of sea and space. You heard the analogy of land-based missiles actually attacking ships, Army land-based missiles. In cyber, it's completely different. It is a new domain. We've only recognized it as a domain for probably the last three or four years, and it is inherently joint in just about everything that we're doing. So what has your Army done about building capacity to work the threats that we see in this new emerging domain? Well, there's a couple different things we need to think about as we look at that. We need to look at how people are active, actively actioning inside that domain. And it goes everywhere from that hacktivist who's sitting in the basement in the dark that's just trying to probe a network, all the way up to near peers who can now actually bring together integrated network, cyber, and electronic warfare capabilities to disrupt enemy C2 and when needed to engage them with precision or mass fires. And we've already seen that happen in certain parts of the world. And so it's really now how do we start countering that and operating in that space. So what have we done? As you know, uh, we are well on our way to building our components for the Cyber Mission Force. 43 teams, both offenses and defenses, is what the Army has been told to support. Uh, we are in a form of IOC, initial operating capability, or full operational capability for every one of those teams, trained, manned, and equipped. And we are well postured to meet all the mandates that have been levied on us by OSD and Cybercom. We are the only service at this point that is truly on a glide path to build the combat power that we need to. The second piece of it, General Farrell touched on, and I know General Baker will go into in a lot more detail, is we've got to build a more defensible network. When it is standards-based, when it reduces the number of points of entry, and then what we need to start working on towards the future is extend that concept that we have at the strategic level into the tactical space. So it is an inherently joint, defensible architecture that is integrated from strategic all the way down to tactical, tactical level. And quite frankly, ongoing operations are driving us in that direction 
We just need to figure out how we're going to literally do it and bring it down to the tactical space. So building that more defensible network is absolutely fundamental to what we're getting ready to do. But we've got to do it in an integrated fashion. And it's not integration from integrating from a network's perspective. I would submit to you that's probably going to be the easy piece. It's how do you integrate capabilities from across cyber, EW, and signal so that we have end-to-end -end solutions that are integrated and not redundant, complementary, but not redundant. And we've got to do that on echelon all the way throughout what we're trying to do. The, uh, we've got to ensure that we build an inculcate that training at all echelons. And we've got to make sure that we've got the right facilities in place uh, as we build the cyber mission force, world-class facilities, world-class training using different training methodologies, not training to a box, but training to a network capability that is integrated with cyber and electronic warfare. So we have the world's best trained operators. That's got to be what our end state is, and that's what we're working towards. And you'll see the Army over the coming years make significant investments in changing the paradigm of which we train our troopers so they can go out and operate in this new complex environment. You heard General Milley talk yesterday about small teams operating in very small geographic areas where they may not have air supremacy and how hard that life is going to be. But the one constant with that formation is it's got to be connected. And it's got to be connected through a means of which it is defended so that it's got assured communication so we can operate. And so you've got to have a level of cyber capability that is underlying in everything that we do so that we can provide that secure network to maintain connectivity to this disparate uh, formation. And it's got to be integrated all the way end to end. Because if you think about these small units, they can't have everything with them. Some of it's going to have to be over the horizon. You heard the analogy about precision fires that will be fired from up to 1,000 miles away. Well, the network, cyber, electronic warfare is inherently global. And so those effects need to be nested on echelons, but the commander on the ground has got to have the influence, the ability to influence what's being provided to the from the enterprise so we can be on time and on target. The, uh, it is a new way of thinking, and it is a new way of doing business. <clears throat> but the beauty of it is, is we get to start fresh in this domain and really start thinking through how we're going to provide integrated capabilities with integrated training on echelon, end-to-end, so we can actually support multi-domain operations. I look forward to your question. Uh, Paul, thanks for uh, introducing us. General Farrell, thanks for the opportunity to be on this panel. Uh, John 1, thank you. General Farrell calls uh, John Morrison, John 1, and I'm John 2. Sir. So when the questions come, please <laughs> phrase them that way. Though we answer to both. We do answer to both. Uh, so I'm John Baker. I command uh, Network Enterprise Technology Command out of Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and I'll provide you with some insights on uh, network readiness in a complex world from the perspective that we have at Netcom. So the first thing I'll offer is, uh, is Netcom uh, is the team that uh, has the varsity. So we're the Army's varsity communicators. My command teams, all hand-picked, down to the cyber protection teams, all individually selected. So what you get at Netcom with 15,000 people deployed all around the world are, is, is the cream of the Army's communications um, enterprise. And what we deliver is the enterprise to the Army. If the Army is 
if the Army is in a location, then NETCOM is there as well. And when the Army goes into expeditionary roles, I'm in support. And if we decide we want to stay for a prolonged period of time, NETCOM comes in and establishes that, uh, that presence. We, uh, we operate in a contested domain. You heard, you heard John talk about that. But it, it's truly contested. On our sensor array, one of my sensors gets about five events a second. That's what's coming at our, our sensor array on any given day and any given week. When we see, uh, when we see malware, about 96% of it uh, contains some part of a signature that's new that we haven't seen before. So the, 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 our adversaries, the nation states, the hackers, criminal organizations, are truly potent, and they are coming at us uh, in a uh, uncoordinated between nation-state criminal hackers, but when we see the malware, you know we're we're not deciphering between coordinated and uncoordinated. We are just uh, defending the network. The uh, the the team that I have, we we're in a resource-constrained environment, but I would offer the army the army is doing its part to try to resource this, and so I, I have about 1.2 billion dollars that I use to uh, fight the network through the resource that General Farrell provides up at the Department of the of the Army level. Now at macro, what we're doing and what, what General Farrell touched on and what John alluded to is we are converging our networks and, and we're taking these disparate networks that have been in existence for dozens of years and we are converging them. So as we bring on the Joint Regional Security Stack, from the Army's perspective, I'm taking about 125 top level architecture stacks that all our data flows through that we use to provide that first security cordon and we're collapsing that down to about 25. So. So from the, from the Army's perspective, on our classified and unclassified networks, we're going from about 125 separate stacks down to 25. Those 25 then join a DOD grouping of 50. And that's the, that's the convergence that we get across DOD as, partner, as we partner with DISA and the Air Force and the, and the Department of the Navy. Those, um, those joint regional security stacks fundamentally change how we secure the network uh, because it allows us now to, to, to Analyze data into uh, locations that we can now use our analytics and our, our software programs that are driving the analytic understanding to help secure the network. But we do have a we do have a uh, dearth of data scientists, and that is a that is a uh, that is a conundrum for us. So right as we're bringing on a uh, capability of a converged network and systems that are going to allow us to do uh, high-end data analytics our workforce isn't keeping pace with the, the technological changes. And uh, I would offer that is not just an Army issue, that is a DOD issue, it's really, it's really a national issue in identifying people that have a complete understanding of networking, high-end math, and electrical engineering that can do the, the uh, data analytics for us. But those joint regional security stacks at the macro level uh, are enabling security, but we're using the ability to see the network at the macro level, and we're using the same TTPs to drive that down to the tactical level. So we're doing testing at the combined training centers right now. We've been doing it for the last two years, where we are enabling uh, a, a data flow between the tactical enclave at a uh, brigade combat team all the way up to our regional cyber center, and right now we're doing the test in the United States. So the regional cyber center of Fort Huachuca is looking at the data flows of the brigade combat team as it's conducting its operational maneuver at either Fort Polk or uh, Fort Irwin. And that is helping inform us how uh, we want to protect the network as one enterprise from strategic to tactical. 
As we, as we work the uh, modernization at each post camp and station, uh, as you heard General Farrell mention, we've done nearly two dozen uh, modernization uh, initiatives. And just to put it in perspective, in the last uh, almost decade and a half, uh, before we started two years ago, we had done zero complete modernization, uh, moderniz modernization initiatives. And in the last years, we've, we're up to nearly two dozen. And when we do these, we come into a post camper station. Uh, we, we fly the switches in, we, we, we get enormous cost savings because we're buying the switches at, uh, at, at scale and bulk. And then we use our own soldiers to install them, so it's sunk cost on labor. And so between the soldiers that we have installed and uh, buying the uh, switches at, at scale, uh, that's helping us do cost avoidance and helping us modernize these uh, installations at a, uh, at a much more rapid pace. But it's interesting, that modernization effort at the installation is also showing us parts of the network that uh, we're, we're finding uh, uh, have, have sprung up literally, that uh, we are having to put back into a, into a process to bring under some type of uh, security and accreditation control. And so we're using this as an opportunity to uh, make sure that anybody who is operating on network is operating on there with the authorities and with the trust through the accreditation process that the uh, Army has. Uh, the Windows 10 deployment, uh, uh, General Farrell is uh, driving the strategic effort, he's uh, driving the policy effort, he's driving the resourcing, and he, he mentioned the word vengeance, I, I'm the vengeance, I'm the execution arm. I, I drive the implementation down through all the theaters so that we are meeting the, the timelines that General Farrell uh, has outlined for us. And it's a very aggressive timeline, but we'll, we will execute and we'll do it on, on the time that he's set. The, the cloud-based technologies that are coming on, bo on board, both the private and the uh, public, that's another uh, great opportunity for us. We're, we're excited about the pilots that we're doing down at, uh, at Redstone, and, and we see the opportunity to get, uh, to get uh, the, the Army up on a, a par with what our industry partners are doing with cloud-based applications and the security that provides. And then the last thing I would just, I would just add is, uh, my mission is to provide uh, freedom of maneuver uh, across the Doden for Army forces and Joint Forces while denying the same freedom of maneuver to our adversaries. And uh, in a contested environment, we never rest for a second. We, uh, we are sustaining our uh, efforts. But it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a daily fight for us, and I don't want that lost on the uh, audience. And I'm very proud of the team that I lead because they're, they're in the fight literally every second of every day. Sir, thank you very much. Yeah, before I turn it over to Bruce, I just wanted to emphasize uh, just a couple more points. Um, we talked about the modernization for the Army network with large, meaning having so many separate and disparate networks. At in-state, uh, when we collapse uh, the environment onto the Army network, NETCOM, Second Army, will manage the Army enterprise. Right now, we have many folks operating their own environment, we're collapsing that, but it will be then from a data center side into a pure enterprise side of the house, NETCOM will be the lead uh, for the Army on that side. The second piece, you've heard John and John too talked about uh, the integrated from end to end. Uh, we must and we will need to move the network environment, both strategic and software and uh, tactical, to a software-defined environment. There is not enough Army resources, money, funding, to change out all of the hardware. 
And so a lot of the efforts, when I talked to the small business uh, group yesterday, was through innovation. Their innovation is what really is going to be needed to help us move through this next five to ten years on figuring out uh, not changing hardware, but looking at what is the software solution to help us move forward in that environment. Bruce? So good morning, everybody. I almost feel like John number three here since you <laughs> heard from uh, John one and John two. So I'm uh, Major John Crawford. And uh, I've got the honor and privilege of, uh, in terms of C4ISR community, of uh, being in the lead position of integrating at uh, a place that if the Army actually had a Silicon Valley, uh, that Silicon Valley would actually be at Aberdeen Proving Ground, uh, just given the research and development capabilities that we've got there, the science and technology capability that we've got there, and then two of the most critical uh, program executive offices to include uh, elements of PEO EIS, but uh, C3P and IEWS. And so my role uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, in addition to being the installation commander and the integrator there of what we call affectionately, uh, and sometimes not affectionately, uh, Team C4ISR. Uh, my role there is uh, sustainment uh, for uh, all of the Army's uh, ISR platforms, and that's everything from night vision goggles to radar. Uh, you will hear about the arming of the Ukrainians. Uh, much of the radars that are being provided, the sustainment training and the actual equipment comes from my organization as a part of the organic industrial base. But I'm also responsible uh, for uh, the sustainment of uh, the vast majority of the Army's tactical communications equipment. So the fact that I'm here, uh, that I'm actually sitting in this chair, is less important uh, than the greater strategic point, which is I think we've had a few of these. And my being here today in the role of sustainment representing Army Material Command says that the Army is clearly recognizing uh, the importance and the long-term importance uh, of sustainment. As just like anything that you own, uh, that's about 70% of the cost of everything. And it is no different uh, when it comes to the equipment, uh, when it comes to almost everything we do in the particular space uh, that we've been discussing here. So I just wanted to make sure that I let you know that uh, that's not lost on me. Uh, that we're really focusing on sustainment. And it's not just sustainment for sustainment's sake. It's integrating sustainment, as we've talked about over the years, uh, earlier in the process, considering the sustainment implications uh, much earlier in the process. And so today I just had uh, a couple of points that I wanted to make. And uh, there are a couple of things that I've been, you know, in my 28 months in this job, I've been paying very close attention to that might uh, be of interest to you. And I call these uh, almost uh, critical inhibitors uh, that contribute to this thing called complexity uh, that you hear about. But it might not be things that jump right out at you. But just for the sake of a good argument, a couple of thoughts. Uh, software. And so I want to ask for a show of hands, but my guess is pretty much everybody in here has something on them right now uh, that contains software. Uh, there's been an exponential growth. Uh, in software over the last 15 years of continuous combat, and I'm a fan of that. Uh, industry led that growth. Uh, I think Gary Martin will tell you in the equipping community, in our PEO community, that uh, they're big fans of that because later down the road, all of our weapon systems are going to be a lot cheaper to modernize. It's going to be a lot cheaper to change and upgrade 
because most of them contain enormous amounts of software. But there are a couple of things that we've got to think about. So our institution right now, given this exponential growth, uh, we've got to ask a couple of questions. Are we optimized to provide the oversight of this, op you know, this exponential growth? to not only exist, but as our trade-off commander says often, to thrive in that environment. That's a question that we get to think. And when I talk optimized, I'm talking oversight, I'm talking policy. Are we optimized uh, to be, to thrive in that software environment? Another thing we got to think about is when it comes to, and Joe Farrell mentioned it, and I think uh, pretty much uh, every one of the other panel members have mentioned it, when it comes to cyber, mainly defensive cyber uh, operations. Uh, have we closed all the institutional gaps uh, that exist between developing, <coughs> excuse me, and sustaining software and defensive cyber operations? I think there are some conversations that we've got to continue to have to make sure uh, that we've created the right collaboration space between the legacy, and it is legacy, I can tell you, we're making some improvements to the way we develop and sustain software. But here we've got legacy processes in the development and sustainment software, and moving to the right, think about the evolutionary growth in capability that John Morrison is building uh, in terms of defending the actual network uh, that John number two, John Baker, is developing. The exponential change in terms of what General Farrell has laid out for a vision in terms of the policy side of cyberspace operations. And finally, uh, where General Cardone is taking us in terms of defending uh, the Army's network is a part of the joint environment. And so uh, another area, you know, are we optimized? Have we connected properly the development and sustainment of software uh, to where we're going in terms of cyberspace operations, mainly defensive op operations, defensive uh, cyberspace operations? Workforce. Right now, that workforce that does, that actually conducts the mission of software sustainment and development is about 85% contracted. The fundamental question we got to ask ourselves, is that a good number? And how do we know that that's a good number? How do we know that 90% is not a good number? And so the work that we're undertaking now to try and get after that, that problem of being 85% contracted in the development and sustainment of software is we're asking hard questions about, so let's just say for the sake of a good argument, there are 10 skill sets. There are hundreds, but there are 10 skill sets uh, in developing and sustaining software. Which ones of those skill sets are important enough to the Army and important enough to the joint team that we believe we should invest in developing government capacity uh, in those skill sets? And so they become government-owned, uh, government-trained, government-led. Of course, there will be innovation and the reinteraction with industry, but which ones of those skill sets are important enough that they ought to be government-owned? I think in the end, if we go that route, and again, this pertains to workforce development, I think industry gets a better deal because the rest of those skill sets will be left to industry to compete for. And so I think there's a win-win there. But the process we're using right now to develop uh, that workforce, again, being 85% contracted, I'm not sure 85% is a good number, uh, but we're working right now to make sure that we're doing the work to inform uh, where that actually goes. Um, a couple of other, other thoughts uh, and just things that I think uh, are worthy of uh, consideration in terms of software, and I'll close here so we can go on and get on to the important part of this, which is uh, actually uh, hearing your questions, is efficiency. Uh, I know General Farrell has uh, led us well in terms of making sure that we stay focused, and you've heard the Secretary's discussions and the Chief's discussions in terms of 
If we look at the software enterprise and exponential growth that's occurred, are we postured to also capitalize on opportunities uh, in terms of efficiency? You know, essentially save money and reinvest uh, those resources in other parts of the enterprise. And so I think uh, one of the critical inhibitors is actually software. Uh, I think it's based on the exponential growth that's occurred over the years. And again, I think it's good growth. Uh, I think it's headed in the right direction and it's market driven uh, by our industry partners. But are we postured to thrive, again, in the words of our trade-off commander and not just exist uh, in that particular environment? Uh, one of the other things, and I'll just offer it and I'll, I'll stand by for questions that I'd like you to just consider. Um, and, and these are not always popular subjects uh, to talk about, but it has to do with tech data. Tech data rights and intellectual property rights. I think we're at the point, uh, given, and I'll preface this by saying, probably one of the toughest challenges we're going to have in the next three to five years is overcoming the last 15 years of uh, continuous combat. In that last 15 years, we bought a lot of stuff. We bought a lot of commercial off-the-shelf equipment, and so a lot of that equipment right now is coming due with warranties. Uh, and so how are we going to conduct maintenance on that equipment? Uh, if we don't have the tech data packages that come with that equipment, and uh, if we don't have some of the intellectual property rights. And I understand intellectual property is intellectual property and needs to remain that way, but I think we're at the point where we've got to have a conversation about it. Uh, it impacts a couple of things. One of them is parts obsolescence. Uh, if you think about this for a second, you know, if we didn't buy uh, the tech data rights, and if we don't have uh, the intellectual property. When it comes time to get parts uh, for this equipment, how are we going to accomplish that? Several of our systems have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of obsolescent parts that we form working groups right now to try and get after those problems. But back to the complexity issue. Complexity is more than just uh, it's difficult. Uh, complexity is more than just related directly to the network. There are several other things that contribute to complexity, and I think software, uh, I think having a discussion about tech data and intellectual property, uh, and I think uh, parts obsolescence are contributors to this discussion about complexity. So again, if you have any questions about that, if you have any additional thoughts, uh, I will stand by uh, to answer those questions. Thank you very much. Good morning. What I'd like to do today is touch on four topics. Uh, one, uh, what we're doing in terms of modernization, particularly for expeditionary uh, capability. Uh, what we're doing to simplify uh, the network, particularly in terms of unburdening the users that have to uh, man and operate it. Uh, some activities in terms of enhancing cybersecurity. And finally, some efforts we've got underway in terms of uh, rolling in user feedback on shaping where we go with modernization programs. So for the first part, uh, for uh, expeditionary operations, General Farrell talked about a couple programs that we've got underway. The first one is on route mission command and control. This time last year, we had equipped five aircraft with uh, satellite uh, high capacity capability with roll-on, roll-on mission command uh, solutions. Uh, these are fixed antennas mounted on C-17 aircraft that the Air Force is doing uh, for the uh, 18th Airborne Corps. We had five systems that were used under test. Uh, by the end of 17, we, we will have equipped all 35 aircraft with the capability to allow uh, on-route capability uh, globally from the uh, Global Response Force. Great capability, uh, long needed, 
and I think this will provide uh, an enrichment uh, for early entry capability. The second is the T2C2 that uh, General Farrell referenced, that's the uh, Transportable Tactical Command and Control. That's a, uh, two versions of a small uh, satellite communications capability uh, that can be ported onto commercial aircraft. Uh, the V1 is the smallest version. It can actually go in the overhead compartment. Uh, the others uh, get uh, checked within the whole baggage. Uh, these provide several megabits of capability for uh, users to actually deploy and employ and get communications uh, operating uh, initially as they enter into the ground. Great capability uh, and will provide uh, a program of record capability that today many units have been buying through operational needs statement of a variety of different products. So this will standardize uh, the system and will also be interoperable with our Warfighter Information Network tactical system, the WinT. With regards to WinT, that's our uh, backbone network for the tactical force. We fielded WinT Increment 1 uh, years ago. Now we're fielding the, the uh, mobile component to that, which is WinT Increment 2. We've been fielding the light infantry uh, for the last few years. Uh, technology has been essentially fielded on uh, medium tactical wheeled vehicles, not ideal for 82nd Airborne or, 1st infantry or the uh, 101st or the 10th Mount to deploy with. Uh, we'll be, be testing at the next NIE this spring uh, a light uh, version of the control uh, uh, centers, the uh, uh, operation security uh, control center, as well as the, uh, the primary uh, uh, network uh, communications node that will now be fielding those on Humvees, uh, TCN, and MOS light. Uh, that will be a great uh, capability for allowing them to uh, deploy with their capability uh, without having to wait for uh, uh, the lift assets to bring the medium tactical vehicle. Uh, some of the same capability will be uh, migrated into the uh, commander's vehicle. Today we have the, uh, the uh, point of presence terminal, essentially a satellite on the move capability the commanders use for mobile command and control. Those are also installed today uh, principally on uh, MRAP vehicles. Those will be migrated to JLTVs and uh, Humvees and will also provide a, a much improved capability for uh, early deployment. There are a couple other capabilities that we are, are bringing in, which is really an adaptation of commercial technology, Wi-Fi and 4G LTE. We have procured systems and gotten them NSA certified for, through the commercial solutions for classified approach. We've actually fielded those to the Delaware National Guard as an initial unit. Those will go to the National Guard as well as the Expeditionary Signal Battalions and uh, that capability is actually uh, working very well. It provides capability for wireless talk operations. So as you deploy, you, you get rid of most of the cables that you've got to initialize to get the talk uh, up and running, as well as provide extended capability around the talk using 4G LTE. Uh, we're getting absolutely great feedback from that and allows us to quickly leverage the commercial technology that uh, is coming through uh, the enhancements in both uh, commercial wireless as well as LTE. Um, in terms of simplification, so, you know, most of these networks, in fact, all these networks are radio-based communications, satellite or line-of-sight radio communications. Uh, when a unit deploys, uh, this network has to be provisioned, frequency allocation, IP address, subnet addresses, and so forth. And those uh, configurations will likely change depending on geographically where you deploy, what spectrum you have available to you, and so forth. Uh, we have, uh, up to date, have had a fairly significant manual uh, implementation of these configurations where people have to take a laptop, go to each of the nodes, update them through a physical interface. 
Uh, we have migrated this now, we'll be fielding this fall, uh, the ability to rapidly provision tactical radios over the air uh, from a net ops terminal, so you won't have to physically go and touch the radios. Uh, the ability to do uh, a Winty uh, complement. So within a brigade combat team today, there are roughly 60 Winty nodes. Uh, you can imagine if you got to go to each of those nodes and, and physically touch them and update them. To include the updated IEVA patches and so forth, it would take many days to completely configure an entire BCT. We'll take that down to uh, about three days. And then finally, the, uh, the talk itself. So where the mission command applications reside, where all of the servers sit. Most of these servers now are virtualized capabilities that have fires and intel and all these applications on them. Uh, those are also fairly complicated to, to initialize, often prone to error, because as the uh, operators configure these things, uh, if they uh, enter the wrong parameters, sometimes it's very complicated to go back and figure out where in the network uh, the issue is. So we are now scripting uh, all of this. So when the unit uh, deploys, they actually execute the script, and within a couple hours, we'll have the entire talk completely configured, uh, eliminating uh, user error. So that will completely uh, change the uh, the amount of work that we provide for our 25 deltas out there today. And then the uh, last part, which is really a modernization initiative, but I think it's part of where we're trying to go, is that uh, we have a stack that we've been developing. We refer to it as McNay. It's a modular communication node capability that allows you to tunnel uh, top secret information uh, into the Winty network. Um, great capability, especially for expeditionary, because today the Intel community has our entirely unique satellite communication system, uh, Trojan Spirit network. Uh, and of course, the Mission Command network is over uh, the Winty network. So if you're deploying somewhere that need both ops and Intel, You've got two separate communications packages that you have to deploy with. Uh, this would allow us to actually send a very small kit. It's about uh, the size of, uh, you know, about this big, about this high, so it's a server stack with a couple routers and a laptop. And this allows us to actually provide <coughs> initial ops and Intel capability, um, allowing the Intel data to go back into the Trojan system uh, once it hits back into a teleport or into a communications node. So, that will, I think, uh, provide a significant advancement in the near term. In terms of uh, cybersecurity, so we're getting some enhancements simply because of uh, technology enhancements. So today in WinT, uh, we just tested out NIE last fall, uh, the uh, uh, virtual routers which, uh, and virtual firewalls, which really provide a, an enhanced capability uh, for uh, protecting uh, as uh, uh, folks try to penetrate into the tactical network. Uh, we've got uh, uh, IAVA patching. We've been working uh, with NETCOM, CECOM, uh, our ForceCom partners to unburden the task of patching tactical systems. Uh, unlike the enterprise environment, your, your office, for example, your uh, laptop or, or PC is always connected into the network, very easy to push out the patches. In fact, most of you probably don't even know it's happening. It's happening while you're at work, and uh, unless it's got a reboot, probably wouldn't even know that the patches are occurring. In the tactical space, the unit redeploys back from theater, get back to motor pool. It can be several months before they actually get those systems up and operating again. And so oftentimes there's a tremendous number of patches that need to be applied. Uh, oftentimes the patches are not just for COT software, they're for some of the GOT-developed mission command capabilities. Some of these patches can be extremely large and cumbersome. So today, we actually send thousands, hundreds of thousands of disks 
around the unit uh, on an annual basis that they use to actually physically patch the software. And so we're working closely with the partners at the table here to automate that patching. We've done a couple of pilots uh, at Fort Campbell, Fort Bragg, and are seeing some great improvements in automating for the tactical space much of the same technologies that we're using in the enterprise. Uh, red teams and blue teams. So we, we have a, uh, an infrastructure within the department that allows uh, the assessment of these systems at these NIEs. So red teams and blue teams go in and uh, during exercises look to hack our systems. Uh, we've brought those teams back in and are, are doing uh, trends and analysis of their findings uh, to roll back into our systems. And, and one of the things that we're, we're doing as part of that activity, and CECOM is standing this up, is the ability to do software assurance of all of our COTS and GOTS software uh, throughout the development cycle. So today we buy COTS. Uh, we essentially leverage the vendor of that product to provide security patches to us. But oftentimes the issues are uh, more complicated. They're based on how well these things are integrated into the entire system and uh, the capabilities that they're standing up for software assurance. Uh, will allow us to do uh, penetration testing of both source code that we have and uh, code that is uh, uh, owned by uh, commercial vendors. And that will give us an independent assessment, get us, get us uh, to focus on, on where some of the issues are. And we're now sending all of our, uh, our systems through the National Cyber Range, uh, which is owned by DOT, uh, DT&E at the OSD. Uh, they've got a National Cyber Range out at uh, uh, Orlando, and so we're sending all of our systems there for independent assessment and then rolling their findings into uh, enhancements and fixes into our systems. And we're seeing a uh, improvement in the security posture of our network uh, as time goes on. And on the WinT system, we've actually been able to apply uh, uh, public key infrastructure, particularly for the non-personal entities. So where machine-to-machine -machine interactions occur, we've eliminated the need for soldiers to establish or have to, to do manual passwords for each of those access. And so all of that now is handled uh, through public key infrastructure, uh, greatly simplifying and enhancing that security. Uh, in terms of user feedback, so we, we have the ability to uh, uh, do a fair amount of assessments out of the national uh, or the NIEs that occur out at Fort Bliss. Uh, we're out there twice a year for NIEs and, and uh, AWAs. But we also sit in with uh, General Crawford's team and with Forcecom G6 at the uh, uh, Collective Training Center. So when a unit goes through uh, the JRTC or the NTC, uh, we sit in on all of their AARs and uh, look for trends. Uh, we actually have a system that we've uh, collectively deployed which allows us to uh, collect all of the trouble tickets that uh, are generated as one of these events. And we've been doing this now for about 18 months. And so these uh, trouble tickets for a particular event are interesting, but when you start looking at all of them for a year or two years and see the repetitive issues that uh, units are facing when they come out to the NTC and why they ask for technical assistance from uh, field service reps, we start seeing patterns of uh, deficiencies. I call them deficiencies, but where they really are is they're, they're training shortfalls. But 90% of the trouble tickets that we get are soldiers asking for support in things that uh, were taught either through new equipment training or through AIT when they went through school. Uh, part of the challenge is some of these skills are very perishable if they're not used continuously, and they have to be enhanced through home station training. So we're using this data now to feed uh, with General Crawford and his team. They run signal universities, there are 11 of these, uh, out in the formation at Post Campus Station. And so we're enhancing the training material that we're providing at those locations for 
uh, virtual video-based training, uh, simulated training, and so forth. So I think that's having a positive effect as we, we look to improve that. And finally, uh, our tactical satellite uh, system is, uh, is fantastic, but if you're in home station and need satellite access time for training, it takes about a 60-day process to get approval to operate. Oftentimes units that want to train immediately are, are, are finding it difficult to get satellite access time, so we'll be deploying this year some satellite simulators to the signal universities so units can actually take advantage of the fact that they've got a satellite asset at, at the post uh, that they can actually use without actually having to go over the bird. And so continue to use their assets for, for refresher training. And subject to questions later, I'll turn it over to Manish. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. So um, POEIS uh, has a pretty diverse portfolio. Uh, I think most folks uh, within the Army community uh, are familiar with uh, the PEO through uh, the very systems that we field, uh, predominantly the ERPs. Um, so uh, they touch um, users across the Army on a regular, if not uh, daily basis, be it GFIBs for, for our financial transactions or uh, GCSS Army or LMP for logistics, uh, and then IPSA for personnel and pay. So those are the, those are the ones that uh, folks know PEOEIS uh, by uh, in many cases. Uh, however, uh, POES also has a significant portion of its portfolio uh, that, that gets after the IT infrastructure uh, at, a, at all our post camps and stations uh, globally. Uh, and that's the area that I wanted to, to, to speak a little bit about. So uh, how are we getting, at, getting after that? So we're staying lockstep with uh, General Farrell's uh, lines of effort that have been published, um, namely build capacity, uh, enhance security, and deliver enterprise services. So. Uh, let's um, talk a little bit about build capacity. Um, what we're trying to do there is change the model, if you will, from an installation base to uh, a more regional, uh, if you will, drawing a parallel uh, an analogy to a, a rising tide with all boats uh, perspective. Uh, so what we're trying to do there, as General Baker mentioned earlier, is uh, embrace and adopt uh, commodity purchases. Um, so leverage our buying power uh, to get the necessary network hardware uh, at the best price possible and team that with uh, the ability to field fast. Um, and, and that, um, in, our, in our eyes, uh, will get after the, the goal in eliminating uh, capacity as a constraint for, for Army users to, to, to do their business. Um, second piece, enhanced security. Um, this is where we get more into a team sport, not that the first part isn't, because we certainly work with DISA uh, in terms of the optical backbone that's necessary from a capacity standpoint. Uh, but again, as General Baker, Baker mentioned earlier, uh, um, we collectively um, developed a security architecture, a target security architecture uh, that uh, we're all striving towards. Um, this is a collaborative effort ourselves, uh, Netcom, DISA, uh, R-Cyber, uh, as I said, Team Sport, and that the goal here is to create an environment which shifts us from uh, the, the numerous TLAs uh, that General Baker mentioned to uh, a smaller handful of JRSS, kind of the centerpiece from a security standpoint, to reduce the attack surface, uh, as well as give us uh, a comprehensive, consistent set of rules um, to apply security uh, at the network level. So um, that's that's part two in terms of uh, establishing the, the conditions, if you will. I see those as, um, and I would submit as foundational uh, lines of effort to, to allow us to deliver the enterprise services um, that everybody demands. So General Farrell mentioned uh, the UCRFP, 
uh, that we released last week. Um, that's one of the, the, the key steps in, in, in our eyes uh, to get towards that uh, uh, capability that users are demanding uh, and they'll continue to demand more and more of, whether it be cloud-based or other enterprise-level services. So um, in our, from our perspective, what we're trying to do is set the conditions uh, whereby we can deliver these types of services uh, today and in the future, because we know that demand is, is simply going to grow, uh, and we want to we create the conditions where uh, the leadership can promote these capabilities and, more importantly, to deliver them. So in, in, in the interest of time, I'll stop there and pass the baton over to you, Paul. <coughs> Good morning again. Hey, Derek. Hi, everybody. Jared Serbia from Federal News Radio. Um, General Crawford, on your point on the proliferation of software, um, I, I don't know how much, but I'm going to assume that some of that has been just a, a result of duplication between commands and, and post camps and stations. As, and I'm just wondering, as more and more of this enterprise moves up to the Netcom level and Netcom takes responsibility for managing this enterprise, do you see opportunities for software reuse, reuse of code, um, if there is duplication to weed some of that out? Yeah, I, I think uh, so that the crux or the foundational piece of the growth is, is less actually uh, about duplication. And it's actually just more about the, the sheer volume uh, of the equipment. Uh, that, that's a piece of it. I'm talking about the existence of lots of pieces of, pieces of equipment with multiple uh, pieces of complex uh, software in it. But the other piece has just generally been the market. It, it has been a fundamental shift from a hardware-based market the C4ISR market uh, to a software-based market. And so that, that's been the major shift. Uh, when I talk about exponential growth, it's not just that we bought a lot of equipment, because we did, and most of it is COTS, therefore most of it has a lot of software in it. But the fundamental shift and the thing that makes this different uh, than a lot of other things we've had to do with it is this is market-driven. Uh, at a time when the institution, the sustainment institution, uh, has been mainly focused on hardware. So that was the, the crux uh, of uh, my comment about, you know, as the person, uh, we run the software engineering center uh, in CECOM. So we don't have a software center of excellence, but we have a software engineering center uh, whose job is post-production software uh, support. And so, again, the crux of my point is not just about how much it is, but that there's been a shift and are we postured as an institution to, to be, you know, to excel and to thrive in that environment. Absolutely, uh, once this transition occurs that General Farrell uh, mentioned, um, there will be some opportunity, but the core mission of sustaining software will still re reside uh, with the Software Engineering Center. The one thing that I'll tell you that's gonna, I'm, that makes me much more optimistic in terms of where we're headed is what you're gonna see, what you're hearing up here, we're at the point where we could all pretty much give each other's uh, speeches about the work that their organizations are doing. And so, and I, I think General Farrell would echo that, uh, unprecedented partnering is the thing that comes to mind in terms of the relationships that exist among the team up here leading very large portions of the enterprise that's going to deliver this modernized army that General Farrell, the SEC Army, and the Chief have set the vision for. And so more to, more to follow on that. 
Uh, I think it's one of those things where uh, we have more questions than answers in this space. Uh, but what we have done, and uh, the thing I'd like to in invite you to take a look at, is we held our first software solarium on the 7th of uh, September, recognizing that there were many, much more questions than answers in the software space. And there are many other stakeholders, NSA, uh, across the department, and DOD, uh, our Air Force, uh, teammates uh, were also invited, and we brought that team together to develop several strategic questions for the Army, and that was just the first software solarium. Industry was not present there uh, because we didn't have a lot of, uh, of uh, ideas uh, to push to industry at that time. But the second software solarium will be held uh, in uh, February, I believe it's two to three uh, February. And at that software solarium, we're going to not only bring in the Carnegie Mellons that we had at the last software solarium, or the NSAs, or Army Cyber, uh, the G staff across the Army to include uh, G6, G8, G4, but what we're going to do is bring industry uh, into that discussion. And then we're going to lay out strategic questions that we've developed and offer industry the opportunity to help us with those. So I'm hoping that that was helpful. If I didn't answer your question, you can fire back. Fair enough. Can I just do a real quick clarification on, on the data center directive? Last I heard as of a couple months ago, that was like on the secretary's desk ready to sign. It's just a matter of sometimes move, things move slowly or there are substantive changes happening to that directive compared to the version that you put out. It's in the uh, editor's uh, phase of just making sure we've got the right T's and I's uh, dotted. Uh, but it should be coming out very shortly. Uh, we've got uh, feedback that is past that phase, and so it should be going up in, into um, the final final approval. Cindy. Cindy Friedberg, Breaking Defense. Probably primarily a John Sub 1 question uh, for General Morrison, but uh, I mean, I hear you know, we're working on, you know, making things more expeditionary, on connecting the strategic and the tactical, and you know we're getting all this great wireless stuff that will eliminate a lot of the cables, and yet then we have Deputy Secretary saying um, Monday, or rather yesterday, if you emit, you will die. We have the CSA saying, you know, we are going to be on battlefields that are swept by sensors and jammers that are looking to either home in on our emissions and drop something on us, or simply disrupt them. So how do we? do all the things a commercial enterprise has to do, uh, and yet make them survivable uh, in a combat environment which the commercial world doesn't have to deal with, thank God. I think I'll pass that to John, too. Huh. <laughs> yeah. no, that's a, that is a great question. And no doubt uh, we will be operating in not only a contested environment, but a congested environment. And so as we work our way through this, we're going to have to think about it really is going to cover just about everything we do. It's not necessarily just a technical implementation we've got to look at. There's doctrinal pieces, and then, quite frankly, there's tactics, techniques, and procedures that we'll need to take a look at. From a technical standpoint, and I'm going to stay straight on the elect uh, electromagnetic spectrum since that's, that's where you went, um, we need to start using what we have in uh, the electro electromagnetic spectrum more efficiently and effectively. We can't just get into one channel as an example and stay there. We're going to have to figure out how, from a technological standpoint, we can use 
a diversity of it so we can be moving around. We've got to take a look at other implementations that maybe we put more of a signature out there so that from a TTP perspective, you're almost hiding in plain sight. That's another approach that we can sit there and say. It's supposed to be in a needle in a haystack, you're a needle in front of many needles, as an analogy. So we're going to have to take a comprehensive look at this to, to figure out how we operate in that contested and congested environment. But, but now I'm going to take you back from just the working inside the, the spectrum component of this. Everything's got to be integrated. The network's got to be integrated with cyber, which has got to be integrated with electronic warfare, and then all the components that come with that. And what we can't have are one-off capabilities that are not nested and integrated. We've got to start treating the network like it is the weapons platform that it truly is. And once we do that level of integration, that's going to change the paradigm of how we actually fight the network. But you've got to roll in those other two core competencies from the get-go. That's work uh, that's going to be heavy lifting as we look towards the future. I hope that answers your question. Sandra. Thank you. I'm Sandra Irwin with National Defense Magazine. I wanted to ask the PEOs um, if you can talk about what you're doing in, uh, in, I guess, in terms of innovation with all the emphasis that there's now an innovation in the Department of Defense and making the acquisition process more nimble. Um, are you doing anything to change the acquisition process to attract new companies, startups, and uh, I guess shake up the market a little bit? Thank you. Yeah, much of our, uh, particularly the tactical network, um, mission command applications as well as the enterprise network, much of these capabilities are developed by the commercial marketplace. Uh, and so we routine, for example, the virtual firewalls that we brought in, those were not developed. Those were uh, industry uh, offerings that came in, and they provided enhancements, so we rolled them in. Uh, so we, to the extent that we can, I mean, in terms of changing the acquisition process, I'm unfortunately a slave of it. <laughs> but within the acquisition process, I think one of the things that in my world especially uh, that, that we're struggling with today is how to balance uh, commercial innovative technologies within the framework that we are all accustomed to within acquisition. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, if I take uh, hardware discrete components today that have some software in it and go to virtual solutions to it, uh, our infrastructure, the Department of Defense today still has a degree of um, risk aversion in terms of applying those quickly. So we've got to go through the typical process of test and evaluation uh, which is, is it's not driven by any particular part of the department. It's just the, the, the way we behave today. And so it takes a fair amount of testing and evaluation before the enterprise is comfortable that we're ready to put this out into the field. Um, and so in my world, COTS, you would think you can adopt it very quickly, put it in the system and go on, but it's the full process of taking it out to a field-based testing with soldiers on it and, and going through that entire process that actually takes a tremendous amount of time. So, so consequently, we can't continuously roll it in. We've got to put it in periods of time when we have planned events that we can evaluate the next upgrade. But we leverage computing technology. Uh, we're, we're delivering uh, next year an entirely different infrastructure of computing technology for our, our tactical operations centers, uh, simply based on the advancements that have gone on in that space. 
much of the hardware components have now been discreetly uh, eliminated and we've gone to virtual solutions that are all cost-based solutions that we're rolling in. So we do a fair amount of uh, adaption of commercial innovative capability. There's a need for more competition. I think for many of the things that we do, particularly the commercial offerings, there, there are generally more than one vendor in a particular space. Um, I think one of the challenges we have in the near term is in the cyber uh, area. If you walk the floor down below and look for folks that are working on cyber situation awareness tools, uh, I saw at least 10 vendors that had them. And so the, the um, challenge will be, I, I don't think the number of vendors is how do you neck down to the one that provides the capability you need, that uh, provides the minimum and, and intrusiveness in terms of training and, and skills required by operators because when we put things down in the tactical network, there isn't a large infrastructure of folks who are available to continually train and, and become proficient at those tools. So uh, I, I think there's a fairly robust commercial marketplace in most of my space. Um, if I could adapt it quicker and, and roll it out without the long protracted testing, I think we could certainly roll it in faster. But I think there's a fair amount of competition already. I was going to mention small business. So you mentioned uh, the, the word innovation and what things are we doing to innovate uh, you know, connected to that discussion. And, uh, and I know we hosted a small business forum this week. Uh, is uh, the activity in the small business arena. I think what you'll find in this particular community is probably among DOD's most active uh, small business programs. Things like, uh, as one example, the Mentor-Protege Program, where uh, we piloted uh, that at Aberdeen Proving Ground for DOD and for the Department of the Army uh, a few months ago, and did a kickoff for it, where we're bringing together, uh, creating a collaborative environment where large businesses can mentor uh, small especially. So in terms of creating competition, absolutely competition is important, but we're taking active steps. I think we did $2.4 billion uh, last year alone in small business, and we're looking to exceed that as we roll up the FY16 numbers. So that, that's just something else to consider in terms of that innovation that we're looking for, understanding that our small businesses are the key to innovation. And from... Sorry, sir. No, go ahead, all. So I was just going to um, uh, echo what uh, Mr. Martin said uh, and just uh, add, you know, um, we rely even more so from a POEIS perspective on the innovation and competitive playing field um, that the market brings us. Um, the challenge that we probably are, are wrestling with is how do we stay, if you will, on that leading edge uh, while avoiding the bleeding edge and how do we do it at the right price point? So picking those right technologies uh, at the right moment meet our uh, network needs. And I'll, I'll add just three things I can talk to you about in, in, uh, in a timeline. So some, somewhere in the next five to ten years, uh, we're going to need the marketplace to help us with composite authentication to get after the trust, to close trust off as a threat vector to the network. Because right now we're dealing with two-factor authentication, but we need to skip over multi-factor and get to composite so we can use biometric technology to really secure the individual on the network and remove that as a threat vector. Uh, we need to get uh, machine learning technologies in there so we can get to real-time interaction of our uh, enterprise with adversary action on our enterprise. And then we need to get quantum computing technologies in because we, we need to 
we need to go from uh, ciphering bits to ciphering qubits because we're, we're going to have a scale issue with the, uh, with, with the range of the enterprise of interconnected devices that are going to come at us. And so we need to get into a higher end math to help us work through uh, how we're going to defend uh, that, that, uh, that enterprise. So those are three areas I would offer the industry can uh, be, they're already, this is already in the academic uh, areas and especially in quantum computing and composite authentication. But if the industry can get there, I think uh, that would be useful to us. I think we got time for one or two more. Mark? Hi, Mark Pomerlo with C4ISRNet. Uh, thanks a lot for doing this today. Uh, for General Morrison and maybe anyone else who wants to jump in, uh, related to the integration of Cyber Signal EW, I was wondering if you could uh, provide uh, the vision or the glide path for uh, this um, as it relates to the new SEMA headquarters at the Pentagon and how that will interface with uh, your service cyber components in terms of defensive operations. Uh, planning and uh, effects generation. Yes, so I appreciate that question because it allows me to go back sort of kind of uh, to what I was asked before. So again, this is not just a um, doctrine, TTP, and material portion of it. There is an organization component of it. And so that integration of cyber, EW, and signal is also the activities. And some of that we're already starting to do today. Now. We're learning by doing in all candor. You heard General Baker talk about the support that he provides to each combat uh, training center rotation. We've also got selected combat training center rotations where we are putting an offensive and defensive plug for, on the cyber side. We will soon do electronic warfare as well into brigade combat formation so we can get after the SEMA construct. So we can learn holistically by actually executing and let that shape how we develop our doctrine, our tactics, techniques, and procedures, and then eventually the material solutions that come with that. Uh, we have out for final staffing our initial doctrine that's going to cover all that. Um, it's FM 3-12 uh, that I suspect we will have out by the end of the year. That will be a, a key unifying document, and from there we'll go into the deeper dive on the actual specifics of how it's working. But it gets after uh, that SEMA construct. Now, where do we put these capabilities? That is what we're going to be doing. Uh, that's what we're going to be analyzing here over the next coming months. I was about to give you a military phrase, but I backed out of that. But yeah, that's what we're going to be analyzing and working our way through the next couple months. We're going to leverage efforts like the Cyber Support Corps and Below Initiative. Uh, we've got to figure out because especially on the electronic warfare side and on the cyber side, we are talking about low-density, high-demand folks. And so where we put them and the technologies of which we put in their hands so we can do distributive operations but centrally managed is going to be absolutely key. And that's the heavy lifting that we've got to be doing over the coming year. I hope that answers your question, sir. All right. Any uh, final questions before uh, closing comments from General Farrell? Going once, going twice. Sir? Okay. Again, uh, <clears throat> thank you for your time this morning. And I just wanted to kind of tag on to John Tu's comment, uh, because a lot of what we were talking about today are, are at the here and now. You know, all of the modernization efforts that, that we're working on, in, in our sense, will be done within the next five, six years. What's the next hilltop? And then what we have that's uh, really pushed out to the industry is a document that's online, our CIOG6 uh, uh, website, 
It's called the Shaping the Army Network from 2025 uh, to 2040. And it's really focused on those uh, items uh, that uh, John too talked about, but it also gets into dynamic transport, computing, uh, edge sensors, human cognitive advancements, uh, robotics, autonomous operations, cybersecurity resiliency, and looks at self-healing networks. Those are the areas that uh, we within the Army are focusing our attention for the next hilltop. Uh, and then we've pushed that out to the industry to partner with them to help us with those innovative solutions to, to get there. Because what keeps me up at night is the cyber threat. And looking at it from a legacy enterprise, uh, we can't get there fast enough. And as I said earlier, there's no free chicken. We need funding, uh, sustained funding, uh, to ensure that we maintain the momentum. To one, fix the legacy environment, but two, uh, get to that new environment, which is a software-defined environment. So again, thank you for your attention this morning. Look forward to follow-on engagement.